Hi everyone, I just have a small favor to ask before I get started with this episode. Please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening now. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please take a minute to give me a rating and review. It really helps small indie podcasts like mine get more exposure. To those of you who have already done this, thank you so much. It's so appreciated. Now on to the show. This is a story we know all too well. A young woman stands in the entryway of a nightclub in the early hours of the morning. She is intoxicated and has wandered off, away from her friends, now finding herself alone outside. Her phone, purse, and keys are still sitting on the table inside the club. There's a chill in the air, and all she has on is a light jacket over her dress. She just wants to go home and go to sleep. When a man drives up and asks her if she needs help, she is quick to accept. He is in his early 30s, clean cut, with a wide, charming smile. He also looks as though he's genuinely concerned for her welfare. He's just a friendly stranger, looking to do a good deed, she thinks to herself. Plus, as the warm buzz from the alcohol is beginning to fade, she's starting to feel the cold so she gratefully climbs inside the vehicle. No one would ever see her alive again. I'm your host, Natalie, and this is Talk Murder With Me, Episode 14, The Murder of Kenya Monhe. Kenya Monhe was not one to back down in the face of adversity. Born January 26, 1992, in Honduras, Kenya's mother, Maria, was just 15 when she gave birth to her. In April of 1993, when Kenya was just a little over a year old, Maria left Honduras for the United States, leaving Kenya with her mother. It was no doubt the hardest thing Maria had ever done, but at 16, she was still a child herself. Maria loved her daughter more than anything, and all she ever wanted was for Kenya to come live with her in America permanently. In 1994, Maria met Anthony Lee, who went by Tony. They fell in love, married, and had two children of their own, a daughter named Kim and a son also named Anthony. In 2004, when Kenya was 12, she moved to the United States. It was Maria's dream come true. Her family was finally whole. Kenya spoke very little English when she first arrived, but she was a fast learner and never let it hold her back. To Maria's delight, Tony loved Kenya like she was his own daughter. It was just a matter of weeks after Kenya moved into her new home that she began calling Tony dad. Kenya immediately bonded with her half-siblings, particularly Kim. The two became instant best friends. Everything just felt perfect. The Monhe Lee family lived in Aurora, Colorado. As of 2019, Aurora had a population of 380,000. It is the third largest city in Colorado, known as the Gateway to the Rockies. Having spent her childhood in Honduras, a country where poverty is widespread and opportunities are few and far between, when Kenya came to the United States, she never took anything for granted. She was determined to embrace all her new country had to offer. 
she excelled in her classes at Cherry Creek High School. On graduating, she began attending a local college in Denver where she studied broadcasting. By this point, she had moved out of her family home and was living in an apartment with her boyfriend, Louis Easton. Kenya was extremely kind and caring. She made friends easily thanks to her warm and fun-loving personality. She had an active social life but also enjoyed relaxing at home with her family. Kenya had already achieved so much in her short life. She was ready to take on the world. At 19, Kenya and her friends were not of legal drinking age, so they used fake IDs to gain entry to bars and clubs in downtown Denver. Kenya's father, Tony, said that he and her mother Maria did not know that Kenya and her friends had fake IDs and were using them to get into clubs. They had always seen their daughter as responsible. She had never been in trouble with the law. But parents don't know everything about their children, especially when they're teenagers. Kenya and her friends made plans to go out on the evening of March 31st, 2011. They eventually ended up at the 24K Lounge in downtown Denver. As the night progressed, they became very drunk. Kenya was just 4 foot 11 and weighed somewhere between 90 and 115 pounds, so it didn't take much for her to feel the effects of the alcohol. In the early hours of April 1st, Kenya ended up outside on her own without her purse, keys, or her phone, which were sitting on the table with her friends inside the club. I've read differing reports about how she ended up outside. Some say she told her friend she was going to the bathroom, and she just never returned. I also read that she got kicked out for being too drunk. It makes more sense that she was actually kicked out, because if she just wandered outside, surely she would have gone back in to retrieve her belongings. I would assume that her friends looked for her, but when they had no luck, they just thought she made her own way home or bumped into someone she knew and went off with them. At first, I couldn't figure out why her friends weren't more alarmed when they realized that Kenya had just left without her personal belongings. I thought they would try to contact her sister or maybe her boyfriend to alert them of the situation. However, Kenya's family would find out the following day that she had not spent the night with her usual group of friends, but rather two girls Kenya was not as close with. The family had never met these girls before. Kenya had never gone on a night out with them, but still, you don't need to be best friends with someone to know that them disappearing from a club and leaving all their things behind is a red flag. On the morning of Friday, April 1st, Kenya's boyfriend, Louis, became alarmed when he realized that Kenya had not come home the night before. There were no calls or messages on his phone from her either. She had been on plenty of nights out and always made it back to their apartment. If she wasn't going to make it back, he was sure that she would have let him know. Sounding the alarm, Lewis called Kenya's sister, Kim, asking if she had seen or heard anything from Kenya. Kim replied that she had not. He told her that she needed to talk to her parents right away and find out if they had heard anything. Kim called her parents, telling them that Kenya had not come home the night before. Both Tony and Maria rushed home from work. They called everybody they could think of who might have an idea of where Kenya was. According to her friends she usually went out with, 
Kenya had spent the night with her other friends, and they had not seen her at all the night before. That afternoon, the two friends Kenya had been out with came to the Monhe Lee home. Tony, Maria, and Kim were frantic, hurling question after question at the girls about what happened the night before. To Tony and Maria's dismay, they admitted that they had used fake IDs to get into the 24K lounge. The last time they saw Kenya was just after midnight. The girls also brought along Kenya's purse with her phone, keys, and wallet inside, which they said she had left inside the club. At that, Tony, Maria, and Kim felt their hearts sink. Kenya going anywhere without her phone was unheard of. There was no doubt in their minds that something was seriously wrong. Just before 7 p.m., a text message came through on Kenya's phone from an unknown number. It read, Hey, this is Travis, the guy who gave you a ride last night. Creepy white van. Did you get home okay? Tony knew he needed to get in touch with this Travis as soon as possible. He called the number repeatedly, but nobody answered. Tony and Maria made the decision to file a missing persons report. But when Tony explained the situation, the officer on the line was dismissive and unsympathetic, telling him that she would probably turn up soon. Besides, they could not file a report until she had been missing for 72 hours. The following day, Saturday, April 2nd, Travis, who Tony had been trying to get in touch with, finally called back. He told Tony an elaborate story about how he had seen Kenya on the street outside the 24K club, talking to a homeless man at around 2.30 a.m. He asked her if she needed help, and she said that yes, she needed to get to her car, which was parked at another club. Kenya was very drunk, Travis told Tony, so he offered to give her a ride to her car. Kenya had left her keys in the club and by the sounds of it was not in a state to drive, but these things did not factor into Travis's story. They drove to the club but couldn't find her car, so Travis offered to give her a ride home. She told him where she lived, and he said it was super close to the bakery where he rented a workspace, so he knew it well. He began driving in that direction, but then Kenya said she wanted to buy cigarettes, so they stopped at a Kanoko gas station. However, the station was closed. Then Kenya saw an Asian man standing nearby smoking, who Travis referred to as Dan. Kenya approached Dan and he gave her a cigarette. They smoked and were speaking to each other in Spanish. Then they walked off together. That was the last time he saw her, Travis told Tony. Tony was pretty suspicious of Travis's outlandish story, but he thanked him for the information. Once again, Tony called the police, telling them that he had spoken to this man, who told him that Kenya had wandered off with some guy she met at a gas station in the middle of the night. He pleaded with them to let him file a missing persons report, but they still refused because it had not been long enough. Understandably, Tony was upset at the lack of concern. He called Travis again and began grilling him. Travis suggested that he and Tony meet at the Kanoko gas station where he had last seen Kenya. Tony agreed, saying that he could be there right away. On hanging up the phone, Tony grabbed his 9mm handgun, 
Maria asked what he was doing. Tony explained that he was going to meet Travis at the gas station. The police were not helping, he said, so he had to take matters into his own hands. Maria's mind began racing. She did not like this at all. Her husband was going to meet this man, whom they knew nothing about. He could be dangerous, and he was bringing a gun. Maria begged him not to go. Tony told her that he had no choice. Then he was gone. Maria was so worried, she called the police, telling them where Tony was going and that he was carrying a gun. This is legal, just in case you were wondering. Colorado is an open carry state. They agreed to send an officer to the Kanoko station, where Tony and Travis planned to meet, in case things got out of hand. When Tony arrived, the police officer was already there, as well as Travis and a friend he had brought along. He parked his white van and came over to talk to Tony. He gave the same account he had given on the phone earlier that day. He and Kenya had sat in his van in the gas station parking lot after she asked him to stop so she could buy cigarettes. She was very upset, according to Travis, so he tried to teach her breathing exercises to calm her down. Seriously, give me a break. When she saw a man walking by smoking, this Dan character, she got out of Travis's van and asked for a cigarette. Then the two walked away together. Tony studied Travis as he spoke. He seemed genuine and looked trustworthy. From his appearance, Tony did not get the feeling that he was some sort of hardened criminal. Then again, what is a hardened criminal supposed to look like, right? But his story just sounded off. The police officer also thought the story sounded strange. He asked that Tony give him and Travis some privacy while he asked a few more questions. Tony agreed. While the officer spoke to Travis, Tony walked up to Travis's van. As he got closer, he was hit with an overwhelming smell of bleach. This really threw him. He turned around, took the officer aside, and told him about the odor emanating from the van. The officer approached the van and experienced the same thing, an intense chemical smell he could not ignore. Before I continue with the story, we should take a quick look at Travis Forbes' extensive criminal history. In 2011, when this case took place, Travis was 31 years old. When he was 17, he was charged with breaking into 16 different homes and businesses in Fort Collins, Colorado, stealing over $15,000 worth of cash and goods. When police searched his room, they discovered pairs of vandalized women's underwear. There had been holes poked in the fabric, and the letter M had been written on them in black marker pen. I couldn't find anything about the significance of the letter M, but the whole stealing women's underwear thing never points to anything good. Travis was convicted on two counts of felony burglary and sentenced to nine years in prison, but instead of going to prison, he was ordered to enroll in a military camp. However, he spent less than two months at the camp before being kicked out. He was then placed on probation, which is crazy. Surely if he was kicked out of this camp, he should have been put in prison instead. In 1998, he was arrested for criminal harassment while still on probation. He broke his curfew 43 times. This resulted in him being sent to community corrections. 
According to the Denver City website, residential community corrections facilities are an alternative to prison, intended to help offenders return to their communities. He was charged with assault in 2004 for throwing rocks at women jogging in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. He pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of harassment involving physical force and went to jail for one month. I couldn't find when this was exactly, but Travis told Nine News Denver that he, quote, used to be a drug addict and would steal Demerol from dentist offices. Later in his criminal career, he did actually spend three years in prison for burglary. At the time that Kenya disappeared, he was on probation for a domestic violence charge. Denver homicide detective Louis Estrada spoke of how Travis's criminal history was one which started off with him committing relatively minor offenses, progressing into more violent crime. It started with burglaries, theft, and moved on to harassment and assault. It started to get a little more severe every time. The detective believed that committing violent crime thrilled Travis. Two of his ex-girlfriends described him as going through a sort of transformation when engaging in sexual role-playing. The women had described this look on Travis's face as though he really enjoyed the pain he was inflicting on them. So Travis did not have a great track record. The defacing of the underwear and pelting rocks at female joggers certainly indicates a feeling of resentment towards women. He does not appear to be someone who learns from his mistakes, having broken his curfew 43 times. But then again, it's more likely that he just didn't care. Now back to Kenya's case. The police officer at the gas station asked Travis if he could take a look inside of his van. Travis agreed to let him do so. On opening the back door of the vehicle, he revealed an absolutely spotless interior, complete with brand new carpeting. But the front of the van, around the driver and passenger seats, was a complete mess, with food wrappers and other garbage strewn everywhere. The officer found this suspicious, but it was not reason enough to hold him. Travis agreed to write out his statement from the night Kenya disappeared. As they were about to leave, Travis approached Tony once more. He started sobbing and apologizing, saying that he, quote, wished he had followed through on what he started. Tony thanked Travis for his help and offered his hand for him to shake. But as soon as they shook hands, to Tony's dismay, he could feel Travis's hand shaking violently. Tony said that it was there and then that he knew Travis was the last person to see Kenya alive. After 72 hours had passed, which to the family felt more like a month, the investigation into Kenya's disappearance began on Monday, April 4th. Family and friends began handing out missing persons flyers and organizing their own searches. The entire community was in shock. People were eager to help in any way they could. Leading the investigation was Denver Police Detective Nash Garula of the Missing and Exploited Persons Unit. Detective Estrada was there to assist were it to become a homicide investigation. On April 5th, Detectives received surveillance footage from April 1st of Travis Forbes. It was given to them by Monica Poole, who owned Debbie's Bakery and Cafe. The bakery, located on South Trenton Way in Aurora, 
was where Travis rented a workspace to bake his gluten-free granola bars for his business. The bars were called Forbies, and he sold them to other businesses in the area. Monica told them that on the morning of April 2nd, she went into the bakery and realized her surveillance cameras had been turned off. She checked the recordings, and the one before the cameras were turned off showed Travis alone in the bakery at around 7.30pm on April 1st. In the video, he was wearing long latex cleaning gloves. On April 6th, Travis was brought into the Denver police station for a formal interview. He repeated the story he told when he met Tony at the gas station. On April 1st, after he left the gas station, he went to his girlfriend, Carrie Humphrey's house, arriving between 3 and 3.30 a.m. He left for work at 8.30 a.m., he said. When detectives examined Travis's phone records, however, they revealed that he was nowhere near Carrie Humphrey's home. This would be the first time he was caught in a lie. Detectives were not feeling good at this point about their prospects of finding Kenya alive. On April 8th, Denver Police Spokesman Lt. Matthew Murray commented on the severity of the situation. We get lots of missing persons cases. No one thinks this girl ran away. We have reason to believe that what took place is not good. We are very concerned, he said. Monica Poole, the owner of Debbie's Bakery, had a wealth of information about Travis, which she was eager to tell detectives. Despite what Travis said about leaving his girlfriend's home for work at 8.30 a.m. on April 1st, he wasn't actually scheduled to come into the bakery that day, Monica told them. Detectives viewed the surveillance footage Monica gave them from before the cameras were turned off. It showed Travis rolling a cart with a large white cooler on top into the walk-in freezer in the bakery. The cooler had been duct-taped shut. He was then caught on film carrying a roll of carpet into the bakery. Next, he walked out to his van holding what appeared to be a bottle of bleach. He then turned off the surveillance cameras. I'll put a link in the show notes to the surveillance videos. The detectives interviewed other business owners in the building surrounding Debbie's bakery. One man told them he had seen a 55-gallon barrel being burned by two men behind Debbie's bakery later in the evening of April 1st. There was a white van parked nearby, he added. Another business owner told detectives he had seen Travis cleaning a large white cooler in the back of his van on the afternoon of April 2nd. When Monica asked Travis what he had been burning, he told her that it was marijuana that had gotten moldy. He explained to her that he had turned the cameras off because he was going to change his clothes. She also noticed that he had a gash on his arm, which he said was a result of being attacked by a homeless man as he slept in his van. He struck me as the kind of person who would lie, even if it was better to tell the truth, because he lied so much, he didn't know how not to lie, Monica said of Travis. She recalled several things Travis told her in the past, which she later found out to be untrue. These included his mother having an advanced case of breast cancer, and he had to take care of her. 
He also claimed that he was dishonorably discharged from the Marines because he had killed a civilian in Afghanistan. Kenya's case was all over every news channel in Colorado, as well as making headlines out of state. Travis, who clearly thought of himself as a pretty good actor, was partial to running his mouth to the media. While he acknowledged that he was a suspect, he insisted that he was innocent. He puts on this whole concerned citizen act, which just gave me the creeps. He's trying to come off as this nice guy who feels bad for, quote, not doing more, but he just leaves me cold. In one of these interviews, he pretends that he can't remember Kenya's name. He keeps referring to her as the missing girl. He actually asks the reporter to remind him of her name. Her story was everywhere, and if you're the main suspect in the case, you do not forget the person's name. It just made him look ridiculous. Detective Garula believed that Travis had an agenda when he spoke to the media. He was fishing for information from reporters about what the detectives might know. Despite suspicions mounting against him, Travis fled the state. I believe this was about a month after Kenya's disappearance, so in late April or early May. Monica Poole recalled that in addition to behaving suspiciously on the surveillance footage, Travis also said and did some bizarre things in the weeks following Kenya's disappearance. He approached Monica, asking if she wanted to buy a thousand dollars worth of oats for a hundred dollars. Then he ended up selling them for just fifty dollars. Then he started talking about how he would have to change his name and leave the country because, quote, that girl ruined my life. Not long after this exchange, Travis got in his friend's car and drove to Austin, Texas. Detectives continued to scrutinize every detail of Travis's story. The fact that he had just disappeared did not help his case either. Innocent people don't tend to make a run for it when an investigation begins heating up. They questioned Travis's girlfriend, Carrie Humphrey, whom Travis said he'd been with between 3 and 8.30 a.m. on April 1st. Carrie confirmed his story. But remember how I mentioned earlier that detectives had obtained Travis's phone records, and they showed that he was not, in fact, anywhere near Carrie's home at this time. He was actually in Kenisburg, a tiny rural town about 40 miles northeast of Denver. While in Kenisburg, detectives found that he made several calls. Police would search the area 15 times over the five months that followed. They searched on foot, horseback, and used helicopters. While they were technically still searching for a living person, they knew they also had to search ditches and waterways for human remains. Despite how thoroughly these searches were conducted, they never turned up anything. On May 4th, after leaving Colorado in his friend's car, Travis was arrested in Austin on suspicion of car theft. Detective Garula flew to Austin, where he met Travis in a police station. He interviewed him for three hours about everything their investigation had turned up so far, particularly the surveillance footage from the bakery. 
He just explained everything away, Garula said. He had an excuse for everything. The barrel, the cooler, everything. When asked about what he was burning in the barrel on the night of April 1st, Travis gave Garula the same answer he had given Monica Poole, moldy marijuana. Then Travis asked why Garula had not arrested him yet. You guys were so close, Travis said, taunting the detective. Travis refused to give certain details about whether he had sex with Kenya in the back of his van and asked for a lawyer. Garula then presented Travis with a warrant to collect a sample of his DNA. On June 30th, Travis was extradited back to Jefferson County, Colorado, and put in jail there. However, his friend dropped the car theft charges against him, so he was released. Once back in Colorado, Travis went to live in Fort Collins with his father. Fort Collins is home to Colorado State University. It definitely wasn't the sort of place detectives wanted Travis to be, given that there were female students everywhere. However, detectives from Denver were surveilling Travis while he was in Fort Collins. They followed him when he went out to bars and nightclubs and witnessed him being stopped by police. I believe this was on or around July 1st. He was drunk, yelling, and generally making a nuisance of himself. The Denver detectives approached the Fort Collins police, explaining to them who Travis was and why they were surveilling him. After being stopped by police that night, Travis seemed to go quiet. Denver detectives could not justify continuing to surveil him when he was not making trouble. So after three nights, they ended their surveillance of him. This would turn out to be a terrible mistake. Detective Estrada would later say of Travis, He has this inner evil, this demon. He can't control it. On July 4th, just four days after arriving back in Colorado, Travis went out on the hunt in downtown Fort Collins. He was literally prowling around, looking for a woman to attack. 30-year-old Lydia Tillman, a Colorado native, had been working in New York for six years. In early 2011, she moved back to Colorado. That July 4th, Lydia was walking home after watching the fireworks display in downtown Fort Collins. Little did she know, she was being followed. Travis Forbes pushed Lydia into her apartment, where he raped and attempted to strangle her. He then beat her, punching her repeatedly in the face. Lydia fought back, kicking and scratching him, but he was physically stronger and much larger than she was. She eventually stopped fighting him and lay still. By the time he finished beating her, he had smashed her jaw and caused severe head trauma. He then doused her body with bleach and set the apartment on fire. Something in Lydia forced her up from where she lay, so badly beaten. Opening the window of her second-floor apartment, she threw herself out to escape the flames that were quickly engulfing the room. By the time she jumped, firefighters, police, and an ambulance were already at the scene. Lydia was transported to hospital. She was asked by paramedics if she knew the man who attacked her. She replied that she did not. Devastatingly, shortly after arriving at the hospital, Lydia suffered a stroke. She was in a coma for five weeks.
The fire, as well as the bleach that had been spread everywhere, meant that any forensic evidence Lydia's attacker left behind was destroyed. Investigators were, however, able to collect microscopic DNA from under Lydia's fingernails. This was sent to the lab for analysis. On July 7th, Fort Collins detective Jacqueline Shackley, who was leading the investigation into the attack on Lydia, got in touch with Detective Garula, asking about the suspicious man Denver detectives had been surveilling in Fort Collins on July 1st. Shackley explained how, after examining the details in both cases, she thought the same person who attacked Lydia could be responsible for Kenya Monhe's disappearance. Detective Garula was pretty convinced by Detective Shackley's theory. The detail about the bleach caught his attention in particular. It sounds like him. He likes bleach. This is his thing, Garula said. Everyone was on edge in the days following the attack on Lydia, but detectives were really close to catching their guy. Travis was once again being surveilled by officers from both Fort Collins and Denver. He spent his evenings downtown, not going into bars, but just stalking the streets and leering at women. In the early hours of July 10th, officers watched as Travis spoke to a woman for a good 30 minutes. When they began walking off together, an officer approached Travis and began asking him questions. Visibly nervous, he told the officer that his name was Travis Kennedy. He did not have any ID on him. He didn't know his phone number, and he couldn't remember his address, he told the officer. By that point, the woman Travis had been talking to was long gone. They had to let him go. Then Travis reappeared about 20 minutes later. He had changed his t-shirt and put on a hat. He started following another woman. This was a disaster just waiting to happen. They needed to get him off the streets. At around 3 a.m., they arrested him for lying about his name to the police. They did not mention that he was suspected of the attack on Lydia Tillman. They were only holding him for a misdemeanor, and he would easily be able to make bond. At 10.45 p.m. on July 11th, Travis was literally minutes away from posting bond but forensic investigators had been working tirelessly to analyze the DNA found under Lydia's fingernails. They compared it to the sample Garula had taken from Travis while he was being held in Austin on the car theft charges. The DNA found under Lydia's fingernails was a match to Travis. At around midnight on July 12th, Travis was rebooked at the jail in Fort Collins on suspicion of attempted murder, sexual assault, and arson. It was not until August 26th that Detective Garula went to Fort Collins to interview Travis in jail. He needed the time to make sure that his case against him for Kenya's murder was rock solid. We want to have a strong case, a case that we know, that when we get into a courtroom, that the jury is going to say, this guy killed her, this guy did this, Garula said. But as it turned out, Garula did not need to spend all this time preparing himself for the interview. Travis made it very easy for the detectives. I'll tell you everything, but I want a deal, Travis said to Garula. 
Travis told him exactly what happened to Kenya in the early morning hours of April 1st. In return, he asked that he not go to prison labeled as a sex offender and that prosecutors not pursue the death penalty against him. If I go to prison as a sex offender, I'm fucked, Travis said. Travis's account of what happened is as follows. He and a friend had seen Kenya alone near the 24K nightclub talking to a homeless man and they asked her if she needed help getting home. They tried to find her a cab to her boyfriend's apartment, but they couldn't find one, so the three of them got into Travis's van. Travis dropped his friend off at his apartment. Kenya passed out in the van. Travis pulled over and climbed on top of her, trying to rape her, but she woke up and began fighting him, so he strangled her to death. He placed her body in the cooler he had in his van and duct-taped it shut. Then he put the cooler in the freezer at Debbie's bakery until he figured out where he would bury her. He decided on Kenisburg, where he dug a shallow grave under a grove of cottonwood trees. On returning to the bakery, Travis cleaned the inside of his van with bleach and burned everything Kenya had touched in the 55-gallon barrel. On September 7th, Travis, his attorney, and detectives Garula, Estrada, and Shackley drove to Kenisburg so Travis could show them where he had buried Kenya. When they arrived, he became visibly emotional and broke down crying. The grave was about four feet deep. She was in a fetal position, covered in a plastic tarp. As they drove back to Fort Collins, Travis taunted Detective Garula. Are you happy, Nash? Are you happy you found her? Are you happy you got her back? He said. On September 26, 2011, while at his advisement hearing, where he was being notified of the charges he was facing, Travis pleaded guilty to the first-degree murder of Kenya Monhe. What I did was horrible and cowardly. It was a mistake, he sobbed. Please remember me. Remember me as I was, not as the monster I have become. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He also pleaded guilty to the attempted murder of Lydia Tillman. Why did I do this? I have been searching for that also in my heart and soul. I think we commit violent acts because deep down we find hatred of ourselves. I am so thankful that Lydia Tillman survived because if I hadn't been caught, I probably would have done this again because deep down I'm fucked up. I'm evil, Travis said. Lydia wrote her statement just days after waking up from her coma. She could not read it aloud herself, however, as she struggled to speak as a result of her jaw being crushed and the stroke. It was read aloud by Larimer County District Judge Thomas French. It read, Travis Forbes, you caused me no harm. My spirit, my soul, and my mind remain untouched. May you find peace in this life. It was my intention to find the strength in my heart to forgive Travis Forbes. I did. I felt extreme anger towards him. Then I felt sad for him. He must be in so much extreme pain to so brutally hurt another human. Judge French sentenced Travis to 48 years in prison to be served consecutively with the life sentence he received for Kenya's murder. In early 2012, 
Travis's ex-girlfriend, Carrie Humphrey, who confirmed Travis's false alibi, pleaded guilty to attempting to influence a public servant, false reporting to authorities, and perjury. She was sentenced to 60 days in jail and four years of supervised probation. Clint Van Zandt, a 25-year veteran special agent with the FBI who served as a supervisor assigned to the Bureau's Behavioral Science Unit, spoke to Nine News Denver after Travis was charged with Kenya's murder. He raised the question of whether Travis Forbes might actually be a serial killer. The question for law enforcement is not, is he capable of murder, but rather, how many people he might have killed. Van Zandt added, For sure, he's a sociopath, a psychopath, and an antisocial personality. I'm not a psychologist by any means, but I don't think it would be a stretch to call Travis Forbes a psychopath. He exhibits many of the traits commonly associated with psychopathy. For example, the extreme violence he inflicted on women he didn't even know points towards a high level of impulsivity and a total disregard for them as human beings. He is also so manipulative. All that groveling to Tony, Kenya's dad, about how nice he had been to his daughter and then how he felt so terrible for not doing more to help her. The defining feature of psychopathy is a lack of guilt or remorse for one's actions, and I don't believe Travis ever felt either of these. The way he acted during his media interviews were not displays of guilt or remorse, but rather a show he was putting on. He was behaving in a way he felt he should be in order to gain the public's favor. His media appearances were also a way for him to feed his narcissistic personality. You see time and time again throughout this case how Travis always makes it about him. For example, when he blames Kenya for, quote, ruining his life. The more I learned about this story, the more I got Ted Bundy vibes from Travis Forbes. He has this all-American, clean-cut look about him. Like Bundy, Travis is charismatic and can be very charming when he wants to be. He's smart and he knows it. I also have zero doubt in my mind that had Travis not been caught, he would have continued assaulting and killing women. In fact, he said this himself. Travis thought he was smarter than everyone else, including the detectives on the case. He had his fun stringing them along for five months before confessing, but he confessed on his terms. He wanted a deal. I'm pretty sure that he saw the ultimate outcome as a win for himself. I've gotta say, I've written about a lot of deplorable people in my time, but Travis Forbes is definitely high up there on my list of total scumbags. The Mr. Nice Guy Act, the crying, the wholesome gluten-free granola bar business, the taunting the cops. Lydia Tillman has pushed herself relentlessly throughout her recovery. She is truly an incredible force. By 2013, she really began to get her life back, working part-time, doing yoga, some travel, driving, and living on her own. In 2013, she underwent surgery to reconstruct her jaw. She assists the Arvada, Colorado Police Department in teaching women self-defense. 
In 2014, she graduated from the Bikram Yoga College of India in Los Angeles and has since moved back to Colorado to teach yoga full-time. On September 16, 2011, a memorial service for Kenya was held at Glory to Glory Christian Center in Aurora. Hundreds of people attended to support her family and pay their respects. Kenya touched so many lives during her short time on earth. The Manhe Lee family established the Kenya Manhe Foundation. The mission of the foundation is, quote, to provide women and children in Colorado with resources, education, and funding to engage in safe, healthy, and productive behaviors and activities in the community. In addition, the Kenya Manhe Foundation will provide the families of victims of violent crime and families of missing victims with the emotional, physical, and financial support that they need to survive the tragic event. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. This episode was a heavy one. As I said at the top of the show, please subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps me, and it's so good to hear that you like what I'm doing. The links to my social media accounts are in the show notes. You can follow me on Instagram to see photos from each case. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me at talkmurderwithme at gmail.com. Until next time, friends.